Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey kids, comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better, stronger, faster. Here are your hosts, Andrew and Michael Leyland. Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. And welcome back to the show. It's Our nice show. to have you at this show. Yes. Not any other shows. No. All the other shows no. are just imitators. All the other shows are just imitators, as somebody somewhere once said. Diamond M? Yes. Is that, yeah. The real Slim Shader. The real Slim Shader. All the other Slim Shaders just with the With the fake Slim Shaders. Imitating, yeah. Was, there, was it, has he got like a posse of like Elvises that all want to be Slim Shady? Does he still go under the name Slim Shady, or is he now just M and M? He's gone back to be Marshall Mathers now. Has he? It? Has he gone back to be Marshall? The tax audit came into it, <laughs> so he's changed his name. Yeah. He got he got bored of apologising to his mum and singing about his daughter. No, I don't think he ever gets bored of that. <laughs> anyway, we are not a Marshall Mathers podcast. <laughs> we are not. Yeah, no, we, we seem to reference him quite a bit, <laughs> but we are not a Marshall Mathers podcast. What we are is a Batman podcast. Is a Batman podcast. That is absolutely right. You know when, when it all grinds to a halt or comes to a spectacular conclusion, or we yeah. both just have a big strap and don't speak to each other anymore. Whichever way <laughs> it's going, whichever of those possible endings we're, we're heading down when, to. When our, we're through professionally. When we are done professionally, yes. And we do a little chart... With PowerPoint slides and everything. Um, a little graph. <laughs> a PowerPoint presentation. A PowerPoint to presentation of all the stuff that we did. Yeah. Do you think that if you make a little graph of it, there'll be like little bars for everything and then just a huge one for Batman? <laughs> Batman and Spider-Man. <laughs> no, I don't think we've done as much Spider-Man as we have Batman by any means. I mean, I'd have to go back and tally it all up, but that seems like hard work. Yeah. And I don't know if I could be bothered. <laughs> Is there any lovely listener out there who wants to do that for who us? Wants to make us an official pie chart. <laughs> wants to make us a pie chart. <laughs> you know, there are people who would probably know better than us because they actually listen to the stuff. We just put it together and oh, no, no. throw it out there and hope that people like it. Yeah, tonight we're a Batman podcast. We are. Once again. Luke Giaconetti will be made up. <laughs> he loves it when we, we don't even pretend yeah. not to be a Batman <laughs> podcast. For today, to celebrate Batman's 75th, that's what I'm saying anyway. <laughs> don't make it true. We are covering the seminal hush. The seminal hush. Does it live up to the hype? Let's not answer that question now. Does it have hype? It was pretty hyped up, I think, wasn't it? It's it's a pretty big story. It's always on the ten best Batman stories ever. Whether or not we think it deserves to be on there. Well, that's a little tease. Lovely listener. Our first email tonight, though, is from the mighty, the mighty Chris Franklin. Charismatic. We're not discussing what we've done this week. I'm, I'm sorry, Chris, your email has been uh, interrupted by Michael wanting to discuss what we did this week. What have we done this week? I recorded a show. 
Did you? Yeah. Did you record a show? Oh, I co-recorded. Was I, I not on the show? I was show? part of the show. I, w- where I, was I? You decided not to do it. Did I? Yeah. Okay. Why did I decide this? Because Stephen Lucy's going to be recording on this day and Michael Bailey's going to be recording on this day and I'm, oh, I'm so busy. I don't know where that impersonation comes from, but it isn't me. It sounds nothing like me. And even if it did have those words in what I said, I did not say them in that petulant teenage accent. So tell us what this show was. It was the, the Superman New 52 podcast. Was it? Was yes, it really? It was a M- Superman New 52 Episode podcast? 52, where we discussed the New 52. Episode 52 and you discussed the the new 52 see that is a professionally run podcast (laughs) that is a podcaster who goes ah I know what I can do for episode 52 and ties it all together none of this just chucking stuff out there like we do and seeing what sticks I I bet in a couple of weeks time you won't go back and say bugger that was actually episode 50 (laughs) yes yes like like what what we do and who hosts this this Uh, lovely show John Wilson does he yes along with myself uh, there was other people and Caleb Gerard well hello Paul and Caleb Caleb yeah and a few listeners. I don't know if they do. I don't know. Uh, Beyond our, our 16 I, I believe, listeners. I believe they do, actually. We discussed our show on it. Did you? We did. Wow. Did, was was nice things said. Oh, yes. Do I owe them a, uh, a, a thank you? <laughs> a big thumbs up? Because you ain't getting money, kids. I'm sorry. That <laughs> <laughs> happening. Well, I appreciate them saying nice things. They may have only been saying it because you were there. There is, there is that. You are aware of that. Yes. And when does this new 52 Adventures of Superman podcast go live in a while excellent they have, yet, they have yet to record oh here Paul has yet to re- John has yet to record <laughs> John has yet to record episodes 40 through 451 he's, but he's done episode 52 he's got two episodes he has not yet recorded yet right and they are going before episode yes. 52 yes he and Michael Bailey discussing Trinity War wow so, I would so pr- I would there is no reason for us to cover X, that is an excellent idea like a podcast crossover exactly. unofficially between two rival publishing companies that aren't really rivals and yes. they could do Trinity War and then we'll do forever that's just your excuse to not do Trinity War it is yeah because I think seven issues is enough plus you want to cover the Justice League stuff as well very important tie in when you do forever the, the, they are important chapters is there an important tie in has there ever been an important tie in ever in that case it's an important crossover is it yes is it? I've read all the Justice League issues I never mean, read Forever Evil yet <laughs> That just irks you, doesn't it? It You're like, how could you do that, Father? (laughs) Should we continue with the email portion of the show? We shall. Now that you've derailed me by plugging yourself and your podcast endeavours. It did not include me, your father! (laughs) Father! See, I was not there. No. You um, have taken your step. I don't recall ever being in the Fantastic Cast. (laughs) You were invited on the Fantastic Cast. You didn't show up. If memory serves. All all your other podcast whore in then. Uh, I I have no problem being a podcast whore. (laughs) Anyway, the checks haven't arrived from my guest appearances, so I'm hoping you're not expecting to be paid. No, no. Excellent, good. We we discussed this. I I think this contract that we sign isn't worth the paper it's scribbled on, quite frankly. I was slightly dubious that on the the, the back of the paper that we signed this important contract was a receipt for Nando's. (laughs) I was a little bit dubious that this was possibly not an official document. Do they have Nando's in America? Senor Domanzo isn't from America, dude. 
Of course. Cena Demanzo is of the world. <laughs> right. Cena Demanzo <laughs> just snaps his fingers and he goes wherever he wants. That, that'd be pretty cool, actually. It would is that, is that how he keeps tabs on us all? Yes. <laughs> he's like he's like a more benevolent Mr. Mickey's <laughs> Pitlick. <laughs> he's always there in your peripheral vision, but you go to look at him. He's, he's gone, yeah. You catch, you catch him in the mirror. You yeah. know, when you come in your own. No, that's a problem for me. But when you're doing stuff like that, you just and you'll glance and he's gone. That's weird. <laughs> off, to, just, off to terrify another podcaster. Off to terrify another podcaster, yes. Anyway, Chris's email yes, yes. that you derailed me from <laughs> twice. <laughs> it's called The Duck, The Frank, and The Ugly. Which I like, it's good that. Hello Leyland, hello Christopher. Howard the Duck. I admittedly haven't read much Howard. I hate to say my biggest exposure was the movie. It really wasn't any worse than any number of critter films of the 80s. I think it's George Lucas's pedigree that makes it seem like a bigger stinker than it is, since it bombed pretty hard with a lot of hype. Now that I think about it, every one of your subjects this week had some pretty crappy movies made about them. Coincidence? Um, yes. It was. I would like to say, Chris, talking, going back to what we were discussing at the top of the show, that we thought it through, we looked at it from every conceivable angle, and when we were choosing the topic for that show, Howard, Jonah Hex and The Punisher, we all said, hey, these guys have all had some pretty crappy (laughs) movies made out of them. That could be a running thread throughout the show. I wonder if anyone will notice. And yeah, and we could talk about those movies perhaps and, and maybe address the problems. I could say that, but that would be an outright lie. It, it, it was Because we didn't talk about the movies or discuss the problems. No, you know why that would be? Because we didn't even twig. <laughs> Did we? No. So, I mean, it wasn't just Chris who mentioned that. So I think Mike Bailey mentioned it on a Facebook conversation with me. It could be another email, so I apologise. It all blows into one when you drink as much as I do. But, uh, yeah, so no, that was pure coincidence. But it worked well. It, yeah. It added a little subtext to the show that we even didn't we even... To. Yeah, that even we didn't know about, yeah. Man, I really need to get that Showcase Jonah Hex volume, continues Chris. Yes, you do. The story and your synopsis of it was riveting. I did enjoy a hex tale or two in my teen years, borrowing them from my ex-brother-in-law. I also enjoyed the modern series when I would think to pick it up. The character just seems to bring out the best in his creators. Hex did appear in the Batman the Animated Series episode Showdown and several episodes of Batman the Brave and the Bold. One of my favourite media appearances was in the Justice League Unlimited episode The Once and Future Thing Part 1, Weird Western Tale, where Batman, Wonder Woman and Green Lantern travel back in time to the Old West and meet X and some of DC's other Western heroes. In a great bit, Hex tells them he knows they are time travellers. When Batman asks how, he says, I've led an interesting life. A nice nod to the questionable Hex series putting the gunslinger in a Mad Max-type future. The outlaw Josie Wales is my favourite western, but I'm also a big fan of The Shootist and The Magnificent Seven as well. All right-thinking people are, Chris. <laughs> All, everyone with that likes The Shootist, don't they? Isn't The Shootist a great film? I've never seen Never that. seen John Wayne's last movie. It's very yeah. good. Very good film. And The Magnificent Seven is just a classic. You, you know, you've made me watch that one. I've made you watch that one. Because it's, it's one of them, Yul Brynner is cool. Yeah. The only man alive ever to be cooler than Yul Brynner is Steve McQueen. And they're both <laughs> in the same film. That is too much cool for one silver shiny DVD to hold, quite frankly. Anyway, that's my opinion. 
Chris continues, heck, any Eastwood Western, except maybe Joe Kidd. Never cared for that one much. I've never seen Joe Kidd. Hang'em High's great. You've never seen Hang'em High? Nope. You really need to watch more Clint Eastwood Westerns, I think. Pale Rider was on the other night. Pale Rider's good. It's a fine piece of hickory. (laughs) Great film, Pale Rider. I think Clint's Will Money character in Unforgiven, continues Chris, may have been a bit too harsh in his past to be Josie Wales, though. Money was a known killer of women and children. Hell, he killed everything that walked or crawled at one time or another. Whereas Josie was a lot like Jonah, with a code of ethics that kept his gun usually pointed at those who had it coming. But we've all got it coming, kid. I need to stop now. No, 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 no. <laughs> we, we quote Josie Wells all the time, Noah. Yeah. Most of the time you don't know I'm doing it. I do now. <laughs> now that you've watched... Oh, yeah, you've now watched The Outlaw uh-huh, Josie yeah. Wells. What did you think of it? I, I thought it was really good. It's excellent. Mm-hmm. It's an excellent movie. To be honest, I wasn't all that big on when I watched Fistful of Dollars. Why? But I really liked that one. Josie Wells is great. Yeah. It's got a really good heart to it, Josie Wells. Governments yeah. don't live with people. People live with people. With governments, you don't get a fur fight or a fur word. Well, I'm here to give you both, or either. It's a great film. I love the outlaw, Josie Wells. I thought it had a bit of a rough start, though. It went from his entire family being... Uh, like wiped out raped, raped murdered. And, murdered and then we had a jolly little tune montage <laughs> over the credits yeah. well I don't think it was supposed to be a jolly little tune it was just you know it was good I love the outlaw just well I think it's a great film uh, Chris continues the Punisher meh like every teenage boy I liked him quite a bit once I have a hard time justifying his continued existence in the Marvel Universe now much like Lobo at DC the heroes tolerate him because he's popular that ex-brother-in-law I mentioned earlier had a complete run of Frank's appearances at one time including Amazing Spider-Man issue 129 it was nice to stir at looking forward to more funky stuff next week well thank you Chris we appreciate that we, we talked more about the outlaw Josie Wales though <laughs> than we did the actual uh, comic books our next email is from Professor Allen which we'll probably end up talking about for the next 45 minutes <laughs> Professor Allen says so Gwen Stacy's death was a status quo change huh interesting interesting glad you finally came around to my way of thinking Professor Allen <laughs> I don't think I ever said that wasn't a status quo change did I did I ever say that I, I don't know I may have done so, so now that um now that that's out of the bag. Now that like, Peter's back, is this another status quo change? No, it was just a story, dude. No, it's a status quo change. He's back now. Although it doesn't matter <laughs> anything, because have, have you heard about the new Spider-Man title? Superior Spider-Man. The other one, yeah. Yeah, but it's only a two-issue limited series, isn't it? Is it? Yeah, it's tied in with some Spider-Man 2019. Oh, I read it? about it, and it kind of spoiled the end of Superior Spider-Man. Oh, right. Well, you should have read it, then, shouldn't you? I hadn't. I just knew that he was like Doctor Octopus Spider-Man was getting his own series. Only for a couple of issues. It doesn't matter. It still means he's still alive at the end of the Isn't it something like 26.1 and 26.2 or something? I, I don't know. It's something like that. I don't know. It's not out yet. I'll tell you when I've read it. Our next email, and probably final for this night, is from Michael Bailey. Hello, Mike. Writing this in the car. Yes. Catching up part two, or I hear you shiver with Antissy. Patient. <laughs> Hello, Michael. Now that I have headed up to the lab and seen what was on the slab, and not only realised that maybe the rain wasn't really to blame, but also that I can indeed remove the cause, but not the symptom. Are you a sweet transvestite? No, sorry. I thought it was time to send the second part to the catching up email I sent some time ago. 
Actually, that's not true. Confession time. Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. It has been nearly 20 years since my last confession, and in that time I have, on numerous occasions, started a bit and never ended it. I have also had many, many impure thoughts, but that's beside the point. My intention was to break that one email into several parts, but in my usual lazy way, I ended up writing the whole damn thing and sending it off. So... To finish the series with a flash email right there in the middle, I is here with part two, where I talk about the recent slate of 70s-inspired shows. Once again, you two have knocked it out of the park. As I have heard Andy say on numerous occasions lately, thanks to re-listening to Fantasticast, put it in the back of the net. Your one-off shows are great, but frankly, these types of series are where y'all excel. They give us an audience something to look forward to. Makes your show unique in that your subjects vary, but you still manage to have a structure. Here are some random thoughts on the comics you have talked about in no real particular order. Do we have a structure? <laughs> <Don't go. laughs> we like to pretend we do. Yes, we, we're very good at pretending <laughs> we have a structure. I thoroughly enjoyed your new gods talk, continues Michael. I am two or three issues of Mr. Miracle and one issue of Jimmy Olsen away from having a full run of the original Kirby New Gods saga, and I am itching to find them so I can sit down and read the whole damn thing. A few months back I read the first three issues of Kirby's Jimmy Olsen run and the first issues of both Forever People and New Gods and was completely blown away. Sure they were crazy, sure they were all over the place, but the energy of those comics were just as strong today as they were in the early 70s when they were released. I read them in publication order, and it was awesome to see that during a time when comics were sold on newsstands that might not carry all the titles Jack was connecting various series through, they were all linked together so the events built up and then were then paid off. The first appearance of Darkseid is teased through several books until he finally shows up. Hearing the details of the issue you covered made me excited to get to those books just for current reading, for the fun of it, and not to podcast about. But you never know, I could end up podcasting about that anyway, because, yeah, project... Giant-sized X-Men. Historic book. The series is good, but to be honest, I don't think it really started clicking until John Byrne came on. Then again, I'm something of a Byrne victim, so there you go. Having your wife slash mother on the episode devoted to the ladies of the 70s was brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. This may be my favourite episode you have done thus far. Angela is entertaining, funny, and added some great insight to the show, not only because she's a woman, but also because she has an eye for art and story that is separate from Andy and Michael. Again, brilliant idea. Thank you very much. Ange! Somebody just said thanks! For being on the show! <laughs> She's forgotten she was on it. Seems fair enough. Repressed memories. Yes, She-Hulk sounds like a lot of fun. I have the essentials sitting on my shelf that I bought at least eight years ago and I've never read. Someday. This issue made me wonder, though, what was it like for die-hard Hulk fans when that show came on? I'm talking about the people that have been reading the series for years and suddenly a television series comes out that is fairly different from the comics. Not only that, but the comics start to reflect the television series. Were there fans that were angry and outraged by this startling metamorphosis? It's a position I can relate to, but at the same time, the incredible television series is so integral to my love of the character that I have no problems when a comic I read reflects it. But what about those that have been following the character before the show? Hmm. I don't remember anyone ever moaning about the whole TV show and the letters pages and such and saying it's nothing like the comics. And Fair enough. You know like they do nowadays, yeah, yeah, yeah. when it's not exactly the same. Like me. It's not Days of Future Past, damn it! Like me, when Constantine comes out. Yeah, so, but I don't recall. Maybe Hulk fans just didn't care. Yeah. Maybe Hulk fans were just like, let's leave it. I like my comics. <laughs> I like the TV show. They are two separate things. <laughs> maybe that's the way It is my comic. I like my comics. <laughs> yeah, it's the guy from Office Space. <laughs> this is my comic. This is my comic. Can I have my comic? It's my comic. 
Yeah, him. Yeah. He's also in Justified. Is a, yeah, but he's a completely... He's a good actor, Stephen Rook. Oh, okay. He's the judge in Justified, the one who doesn't wear any pants. <laughs> okay. He doesn't, doesn't wear any trousers. He's a really good guy. I like it. Absolutely loved your The Night Gwen Stacy Died episode. The analysis of the comic was very engaging, and I liked that while you both obviously liked this story, you were still able to look at it objectively. The highlight of this issue was the discussion at the end. I will admit that I enjoyed Sin's past when I read it, but at the same time I saw why it was such a slap in the face to readers. Not because of its sullying Gwen, because I haven't read the issues where she was a major part of Peter's life, but because, as Andy so eloquently pointed out, it pisses over a lot of continuity, which at that time mattered. I liked JMS's run on Amazing for the most part and thought that his portrayal of Aunt May was one of the best I've read, but that story was ill-conceived and damn creepy in places. The back and forth between you two made for a great listening experience. That's it. Keep it up. And all that. Cheers, Mikey Mike B. Well, thank you very much, Mike. We always appreciate your emails. You've gone back to being really awkward whenever someone comes Someone us. says nice things about us, yeah. No, I am quite uncomfortable with it. I do like as well that you... I mean, they probably wouldn't have picked that up. Yeah, yeah. It's you with the body language. You've, you've, you've got all funny. Just somebody <laughs> said something nice. We're British. We don't do compliments, do we? <laughs> I'm quite fond of them. It's just the queuing that we can't get over yet. <laughs> we are very good at queuing. Yeah. Yes. Anyway, we'll knock it on the head for emails, though, because uh, the email sack is looking a little dry at the minute. Has to be said. Don't start. We please. drained it fully <laughs> last week, did we not? We, we did. Yeah. So, you know. Anyway, yeah, we'll turn it off. We'll plug uh, somebody's show in a minute. It won't be a minute for you, it'll be a couple of seconds. And then we'll be right back with Batman. Hush. I prowl the rooftops and alleyways at night, searching for justice, blind justice, a guardian devil. (coughs) No, 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 that's not actually true. I'm not Daredevil, blind attorney by day and fearless crime fighter by night. No, I am J. David Weeder, a podcaster, but you can call me Dave. I do read about Daredevil and his adventures, and I podcast about it on my show, Dave's Daredevil Podcast. You see, it's, it's my Daredevil, you get it, you get it. Every Sunday, I read a Daredevil comic and share my thoughts and feelings on the issue, the characters, and the world of Marvel's Man Without Fear in an easily accessible audio form. And I want to take you along for the ride, so tune in each week as we meet Daredevil, his villains, his loves, and more hornhead goodness than you can shake a billy club at. That is every Sunday on iTunes and at www.daredevilpodcast.com. That is daredevilpodcast.com. Take the dare. Listen to Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Did I really just say take the dare? Hush was a big deal. Jim Lee, one of the most popular comic book artists of the 1990s and one of the founders of Image Comics, was returning to mainstream comic books with a big splash. He was going to draw the Batman. After co-creating the blockbusting success that was Image Comics in 1992, Lee had returned to the big two prior. He had been, along with other Image founder Rob Liefeld, part of Marvel Comics' Heroes Reborn initiative that was supposed to take characters such as Captain America, Iron Man, the Avengers and the Fantastic Four and reinvigorate them in the Image style, quelling the moribund sales and updating their convoluted and established backstories. Sadly, this meant retelling old stories with not quite up to snuff modern art, and the much ballyhooed relaunch landed with a dull thud. Within the year, Marvel had reintegrated those characters back into their mainstream continuity, and Heroes Reborn was all but forgotten. Liffield's reputation never really recovered from the Heroes Reborn debacle, but Jim Lee proved himself to be like Teflon, and nothing negative stuck to him. 
He even took over the failed Liffield titles and was asked to continue with the project for another year. Even when other image creators found themselves mired in controversy, Eric Larson's name withheld letters to Comic Buyer's Guide or Todd McFarlane's court cases, for example, Jim Lee always came out trumps. It helps that Lee was one of the better artists in the image stable. He had more of a command of anatomy than Liffield and was nowhere near as stylized as McFarlane. Whilst not as good a traditional comic book artist as Eric Larson, Lee is a good sequential storyteller, albeit stories in which pretty people stand around posing with slicked hair and gritted teeth. Lee also had a decent measure of success due to having a pretty good business head. He had his own imprinted image called Wildstar and had great financial success with Wildcats and Gen 13. Couple this with his Marvel successes where his X-Men issue 1 released in 1991 sold over 8 million copies plus the Heroes Reborn material which from Lee's end sold quite well. It proved that there was still an appetite for Jim Lee drawn comics. With Lee losing interest in the day-to-day business end of being in publishing, he sold Wildstorm to DC in 1998, making himself financially solvent and enabling him to get back to his first love, drawing. After rejoining DC, Lee was looking for a project to make a splash with. Writer Jeff Loeb was at that time one of comics' best-known names, having written proper films like Teen Wolf and Commando. I say proper films. In the comics, after taking the challenges of the unknown out for one last spin, he took to being the guy that wrote stories that rewrote characters' early days, writing for Marvel, Daredevil Yellow, Spider-Man Blue and Hulk Grey, and for DC, Batman The Long Halloween and Dark Victory, and Superman for all seasons. He was also the regular writer on Superman around this time, turning out some fun Superman comics with artist Ed McGuinness. Loeb and Lee joined forces to create a 12-part Batman epic that would run in the standard comic series rather than, as with most of Loeb's other projects, standalone miniseries. This was quite a brave move by DC, not least because Lee has never been the best at getting his projects out on time. To accommodate this, DC allegedly had six issues already fully completed before announcing the series. And announce it, they did. This was huge. Jim Lee on Batman. I almost felt sorry for Jeff Loeb, as, let's be honest, nobody really cared who wrote it. It was Jim Lee on Batman. I also felt a little bit sorry for myself. See, despite DC bringing this team on to boost sales of Batman's own title, there were some of us, myself included, who were really enjoying Ed Brubaker and Scott McDaniel's run on Batman, when not interrupted by the latest cash-grabbing title wild crossover, and this kind of soured me on Hush before I even picked it up, especially as I'd never really been a convert to the Church of Jim. His art, to me, had always been the equivalent of watching women's diving at the Olympics. It's pretty to look at and technically proficient, but not something I'd want to spend any money on. But, sucked in by the hype, I purchased every single issue of Hush. It's Batman. It's not like I wasn't going to buy it. Lope has said on many occasions that he writes what the artist wants to draw, and judging by the cover of Batman issue 608, what Jim Lee really wants to draw is the soles of Batman's boots. What's really impressive is that these must be brand new boots. There's no whir and tear on the tread, no crap stuck in the grooves. They're really quite impressively clean boots for so grimy a city as Gotham. You know, I actually thought something like that before. When you looked at it. I saw it going, 
Those are really good. I wonder if he ever wears the sole of his boots, or does he put new ones on he every ones night? On every single night. Yeah. That's what I thought when I looked at that. He must wear new boots every single day. Once we look past Batman's boots, we see a lengthy muscular thigh as a leg is outstretched towards us, the readers, and then the rest of Batman swinging on a taut silken bat rope from an overhead building. It's Gotham, so of course there are gargoyles on the buildings behind Batman. Perhaps giving us an idea of the lead time, whilst this comic is dated December 2002, the art on the cover is dated 2001 by Jim Lee and Scott Williams. It's an alright cover, but it's Lee swiping himself. He drew pretty much this exact same image in a Batman black and white story that he did. He, remember. he always drew this image, didn't he? No, I don't recall him paying as much attention to the soul of Batman's boot. Do you know what I did? I did look at it and go, is he spelling something out in that boot? Because it looks like it's an L and then a Y and then a Y and then a W and then a W and then a Y and then and then I decided, no, that's just stupid. I saw lots of W, so maybe he's wearing Wayne boots. <laughs> Wayne Enterprises makes boots. Wayne Enterprises has branched out into making footwear. Yeah. They... For the kept crusading set. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why not? There's money in it. See, I've always I've thought that. I think somebody suggested it somewhere. I thought that's a really good idea. If superheroes exist, wouldn't they become fashion statements? Yeah. Well, it was all Star Superman, wasn't it? Jimmy was also makes a point of saying people are wearing Kryptonian overpants because Superman has made them popular. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's become a fashion. And I was like, yeah, people would totally wear Batman capes, wouldn't they? Yeah. I mean, they wore them in our world. I saw a kid today with a Superman cape on. Yeah. And so... I'd, I'd wear a Batman cape if it wasn't frowned upon. I'd wear a Batman cape and cowl on a daily basis <laughs> if it was just the generally accepted thing. I just think that as when you walk into a bank, they'd probably make you take it off. <laughs> and then you'd go, up, I can't do that. It will reveal my secret identity. As mentioned, Jeff Loeb wrote this, and Jim Lee and Scott Williams did the pencils and inks. The creative team pretty much stayed in place, didn't they, for all 12 issues? Yeah. I don't think they skip an issue anywhere at all. Hush! Chapter 1, The Ransom. Batman is out doing his thang. A young boy, Edward Lamont IV, heir to the Lamont chemical fortune, don't you know, has been kidnapped by Killer Croc. It doesn't make sense, the Batman notes, as he and Croc kick the spit out of each other. Croc doesn't do kidnappings. He subdues Croc with hypersonics and turns the boy over to the FBI. The FBI aren't impressed that the ransom money, $10 million, is missing. The Batman notes that if he could get in then she could get in. The Catwoman. Again, this makes no sense. Catwoman had been making a go at going straight. The cat and the bat chase each other over the Gotham rooftops, but as the Batman swings in, something cuts his line and he falls. Using one of the many gargoyles littering the buildings of Gotham, the Batman breaks his fall, but also his shoulder, as he falls into an alleyway in Park Row, a.k.a. Crime Alley. And there is no hope in Crime Alley. Elsewhere, Catwoman arrives at her swanky apartment in Gotham's posh area, only to hand all of the money over to Poison Ivy. Most of the synopsises for this are going to be short. Yeah. There's a reason for that. Yeah. Lovely listener. There's not really a lot going on on an issue-by-issue basis. Has to be said. Oh, there's not really a lot going on. Oh, there is. It's just not explained until the last issue. Yeah, when we get a huge info dump. But we'll, we'll come back to that next week. The opening, is, the opening sequence of this comic is actually very impressive isn't it? Yeah. Batman does his breaking and entering bit. He takes down four bad guys without even breaking a sweat. And it's all from his point of view. 
which is lovely. It's it's showing his is this his internal computer in his cowl? Yeah, is that what it's demonstrating? Um, and he's picking out nerve endings and various places that he can kill a man with the, just the touch of a finger. And, Eleven ways from this position. Yeah, that kind of thing. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah, I like it when Batman's cool like this. Yeah, and, and Jim Lee's art's detailed and exciting. It's it's a very good. Bond-esque opening to the comic book. A lot of that you don't get in the pencil version. Why? All of these on-board computery stuff. That's not in the pencils. Is it not? See, Michael's got a copy of Hush Unwrapped. Which is all of Lee's pencils. Which, oh, yeah, yeah, cause, so that must have been added in colouring, mustn't it? Yeah. You don't get all the internal computer stuff. Right. Also, I suppose we should mention in Hush Unwrapped there's a two-part origin of Batman. Which by was, Lee and Loeb. Yeah. Which was... Was that in the... The 52, the 52 weekly series? Yeah. Right. Okay, fair enough. We may be referring to that as we go through, because Michael likes the pencil version of this. The splash page happens on page four, which it does with most of this. Yeah. Most of these issues have, like, a pre-credits Bond-type sequence before we get to the the opening credits. The anatomy on Batman on this page is a little bit screwy. He's got very, very thick wrists... Mm. His, his arms don't taper off into a wrist, do they? I think he's Batman, and that is weird. It's not like the rest of it. That's very Frank Miller. Yeah. It's just that one page, because he'll go back to Jim Lee Batman for the rest of it. Yeah, my problem with it is all anatomy. His, his forearms are the same width as his wrist, which, look at my forearm. Yeah. Look at my wrist. <laughs> look at your forearm. Look at your wrist. They taper off. Yeah. Batman's done, apparently. <laughs> Batman has wrists that are as thick as his biceps. Yeah. Which I, I thought that it was a little... Him. Yeah, I, I mean, the top of the show introduction, I said Jim Lee was better at anatomy <laughs> than Rob Liefeld. Apparently not. No, he's, he's better than Liefeld. Yes, yes, that's true. Batman doesn't have boobs. No, he doesn't. No, not big boobs, anyway. Um, his thigh is also huge. His right thigh is absolutely massive. His other thigh is cloaked in shadow, so it's possible Batman just has huge thighs. Could be, isn't it? Yeah, it's certainly worth uh, it's certainly worth thinking about, but perhaps not for very long. We again get a lovely two-page splash of Batman and Croc fighting to protect the Lamont boy. Uh, in the background, you can see Catwoman. Yeah, sneaking around, very very tiny in the background. It's actually quite nice. Killer Croc now looks like the lizard. Yeah, but the they, they do point out he's mutating. Yeah, well, I think he's been in the constant mutation, hasn't he, since was, he started off? Was this when he actually turned from guy with skin disease to full-on monster? I think, well, he was only a guy with skin disease pre-crisis, wasn't he? The post-crisis crap wasn't a skin disease crap, was he? I don't know. Wasn't he a mutation of some description? He still was in the Azarello. The Rizzo-Azarello thing that followed this, Dark City. Yeah. Was he? He's just a guy with skin disease and that. Oh, right, okay. All right, I don't know then. I thought they changed him so that he wasn't, but I don't remember. I always default to the the post crisis pre crisis version. Sorry, because that's where I met Killer Croc. I said that Jim Lee was obsessed with the soles of Batman's boots. Yeah, another shot of the sole of his boot though, and one on the next page, and one on the next page also. So he does I- really good soles. He does. He also maybe has a bit of a foot fetish. We also see Catwoman's claw grabbing hold of the briefcase. So yeah. again, nice little subtle touch that the cat's afoot. As with all of Loeb's writing, the captions are all internal monologues. And Batman spells out the differences between him and Superman in the middle of a fight with Killer Croc. 
Well, he points it all the way through it when he's talking about rescuing the boy. Do you not think if he's he's thinking about Superman when he's in the middle of a fight for his life, he's got serious inadequacy issues? Well, in the issue where he fights Superman, it felt like it was being written by a fan of Superman. There's no wrong with that. No, no, no. It's well, nice that a fan of Superman's writing a Batman comic, because normally it's, Batman is so cool and yeah. Superman's so lame, isn't it? You can always tell who the writer prefers, Batman or Superman, and in this, Loeb definitely prefers Superman over you Batman. Think? Yeah. Alright, fair enough. Well, despite the fact he's wrote more Superman. Although he wrote Superman... Mon- yeah, he wrote Superman Monthly, didn't he? He's never yeah. wrote Batman Monthly, apart from this. Yeah, I, I do think this is one of the, the problems with modern writers, really, in that Batman's problems with Superman as re-envisioned he's not a cool capable of anything kind of guy he's awash with insecurities when it comes to Superman yeah about the fact that he's got no superpowers although in the next issue he beats the crap out of him well not the next issue yeah well <laughs> when we get there yeah that's that next week possibly it's this week is it are we coming on that one this yeah. week I don't know I read all this as one they all blur into one after a while it's it's the difference between the two of them I suppose Superman is comfortable with who he is and has a ton of superpowers and represents everything Batman wants to be but isn't and there's a certain do you get an undercurrent of jealousy that he has all those superpowers no from Batman I got I've always got that Batman was confident in himself and what he's doing Talks about Superman a lot, though. Yeah, because he's written by Jeff Lowe. <laughs> All right, okay, fair enough. I did have a hard time accepting that Mr. I prepare for everything isn't prepared for one of his bat lines being cut or fraying. Yeah. He's got no get-out clause for this. Well, I kind of like how he's just a normal guy in this, but when he gets his ass handed to him before the, the first issue ends... Also, I think we should note the for later, lovely listener... You do not see what it is that cuts the bat line. You can see something moving past. Yes, but you don't see what it is. Yes. Apparently, uh, I'm not saying apparently, I've read it all. At the end of this story, that is supposed to be a huge clue as to who the guy is. Right. But we don't see that. No. So, kind of thought that was a little bit cheap. It was cheating. a boomerang. He got bored of Spider-Man. Is so it? He went to Batman. <laughs> the killer that keeps coming back. Uh, it is quite a savage fall yeah. for Batman, and it, it's kind of heavily implied he's he's broken some bones here and is internally bleeding, he's isn't it? He's broken quite a lot. Yeah. They say later on he's got a, a cracked skull and bits of bone which, on his brain. Yeah, which is why they call him Sir Thomas of Elliot. Uh, I did think it incredibly convenient that the Batman would fall over and go splat over part row, a.k.a. Crime Alley, which is where his parents were killed, and also the alley where he found Jason Todd. Yeah. Another clue, perhaps? Oh. Oh. See, when reading this for the first time, we're going to go through this later, but I was piecing it all together this time and seeing if it held up. Right. So there is a little bit of a clue, though, if you're paying attention. It's <laughs> a little bit of a clue as to who it may or may it not may be. It may or may not be. Uh, it does beg the question, is Gotham just a lot smaller than advertised? Crime <laughs> yeah. Alley seems to be quite near the most salubrious end of town where Catwoman lives. Maybe there's just not a lot of town. Could be. Artists like Adam Cuba who draw Gotham as though it's just stacks of buildings on top of each other. Yeah, okay. Well, you know, well, as, as I say, this is explained later. Catwoman's fully clothed, which is nice. It makes a change. That's but, the um, Darwin Cook costume, isn't it? Yeah, that's because it, it's, I presume, that the uh, the Darwin Cook, Ed Brubaker designed and written series was out at this point. Yeah. 
So, yeah, she is fully clothed, but we do get a nice ass shot. And Poison Ivy's too. Uh, yeah, so it kind of works out. I mean, it is also a nice change. Catwoman doesn't have breasts the size of balloons. He's following the Ed Brubacker Darwin Cook version of the yeah. character. And credit Jim Lee's anatomy on the thighs are a bit off on the last page, but he's giving her a spelt figure rather than Jim, I like boobs, Ballant, yeah. who, who made her look like, you know, if she fell in water, she'd, she'd float. Catwoman is enthralled to Poison Ivy, who does have balloon breasts, and also seems to be one of those women that contorts her body so that we can actually get a really good look at them while still looking at a lot of her ass on the same shot. He's an image artist. Yes. I think a lot of people have took the mick out of that of late, but it's once it's one of those things you notice, you're going, there's no way you would stand like that and be comfortable. And also, Poison Ivy is wearing more than we're used to Poison Ivy wearing at the minute. Yeah. So, fair play, at least he's put some... He's done right by Catwoman. You can at least give the men something to look yeah, at. Yeah, all right, fair enough. Well, Catwoman's shapely enough. There's nothing wrong with her. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying it's nice that she's not um, cheesecake. Yeah. You know, she's not taking a, a costume off and having a bath. Just for the sake of it, you know, like Black Cat. Even yeah. with Poison Ivy's around. Yeah, in that issue of Spider-Man. So, uh, it's a pretty decent first issue. It's billed as a 12-part story, so to complain that it's all set up is churlish. As with all Loeb comics, it's a very fast read, but to be fair, going back and looking over it does reveal some subtleties. As we pointed out, like Catwoman sneaking around when Croc and Batman are fighting. Speaking of the art, it's Jim Lee. You get what you pay for. It's nice and pretty, and I don't really see any evolution in his art style since his X-Men days, but maybe that's a good thing. Some artists lose their fan base as they evolve. Jim Lee's probably kept his fan base by steadfastly refusing to revolve. Oh, no. Evolve. He's gotten worse. Has he? Hush is the best thing he's ever done. You think? Yeah. Okay. I did think it odd as well that the adverts in this comic are on a different paper stock. Yeah. So the rest of the... the com- and you won't have noticed that because you read the unwrapped, but I thought that was weird. The, the adverts are cheaper. Yeah, they're on cheaper paper, but I didn't know whether that was deliberate or what. What do you think of it? I thought it was great. Oh, right, okay. (laughs) It's it's very fast-paced, but I thought it had a really strong ending just for them to serve Batman who's behind by the end of the issue. Yeah, it's it's, it's pretty much the 12 parts in Microsoft. Something they do quite frequently, actually. What, give Batman a a kick in? Yeah. Yeah, he's not as good he's as he's been he kicked for his back grapple. He's having his car blow up. He's just not as, as his reputation yeah. is quite overblown. <laughs> I think just like his car. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> Batman six oh nine cover dated January two thousand three. As Batman stood in centre frame like a rigid column, as Poison Ivy and Catwoman flank him on both sides, giving him a rigid column. Yeah, Poison Ivy is stroking his belly with one finger over his utility belt whilst Catwoman sniffs a rose while simultaneously rubbing Batman's manly thigh. Ivy also has a tree growing behind her that wraps around the cover, giving Catwoman's cat something to climb on as Ivy, the plant, not the woman, curls itself around Batman's neck, groin and upper thigh. Why, yes, it is incredibly suggestive, (laughs) as Ivy and Catwoman stories have become in recent years. I don't really have a problem with it. It's... It's probably only suggested to adult readers. A kid would probably just look at that and go, oh, that's cool, look at the cape. It's very long, isn't it? If Batman plays his cards right, he won't be killed tonight. What's he stood on? Plants. If you follow his legs down yeah. to, to where they should end, he's hovering in mid-air. He is. So is he being held up by the ivy or the tree? Is that the implication? Yeah. Okay. So let's go with that. All right. <laughs> yeah, all right. <laughs> 
Chapter 2, The Friend. Batman lies incapacitated in crime alley and surrounded by crims. He managed to get a call out to Oracle before he fell, who summons the Huntress, who arrives and kicks all the ass. The Batmobile, summoned by Oracle and operated by computer, arrives and Huntress bundles the wounded Batman into the car. Unbeknownst to them, they are watched by a man in a trench coat with bandages on his head. Elsewhere, Poison Ivy meets up with Trenchcoat Man and gives him half the money Catwoman stole. He quotes Aristotle, which makes us hate him. At the Batcave, Alfred says that injuries are too severe for his skills, and Bruce manages to signal in Morse code with his finger the name Thomas Elliot. That must have taken him some considerable time. Alfred makes the call and Tommy Elliot arrives, all cocky swagger and golf talk, because he's a doctor and all doctors play golf, right? Anyway, Tommy is a heretofore unmentioned best friend of Bruce from childhood and a master surgeon. That was lucky, wasn't it? And after Alfred arranges a cover story of Bruce crashing his Porsche, they take Bruce to the hospital. Elliot operates on Bruce and saves his life. Elsewhere, Trenchcoat Man quotes Aristotle again as he cuts Bruce's picture out of the paper. Uh, Again, the opening's pretty cool. Batman is incapacitated but manages to alert Oracle. In a, a bad way and unable to really move, he still manages to take out all the bad guys. Yeah. His cowl emits a tear gas if it's touched the wrong way. Which is cool, but how thick is he? Yeah, and because it's Kevlar as well, isn't yeah. it? And it's, how heavy is that? And it's the costume electrocutes people that touch him. Yeah, no wonder his cable snapped. It's because of the weight of his costume. <laughs> Bloody Jim Lee's killing Batman. Well, it's from Tim Burton, isn't it? It does beg the question how anyone can touch Batman. I don't remember yeah. people punching him in the head and getting tear gas all over the face, do you? Yeah. Or Catwoman touching him and getting electrocuted whenever she rubs against him. I <laughs> which mean, she does quite a which bit. Which she does quite a bit. I mean, it's a good bit. It's a good opening. Did no one like Huntress at this bit? Because no one likes her. Um, it's not that no one likes her. It's that no one likes her very much. Yeah. No, no one trusted this version of Huntress, this Helena Bertinelli chick. I mean, as you so go through she the story, Bruce Wayne's daughter. No, she, this one is not Bruce Wayne's daughter. As right. you go, she's a school teacher, I think. Okay. Memory serves. A school teacher who fights crime at night. Yeah. If only my teachers did that, I'd pay more attention. You know what that is? In real life, school teachers spend all night marking. Yeah. This stretches credibility far more than anything <laughs> in any other comic book ever that a teacher has time to go out at night and fight crime. Really? Do you know how much marking they do? No, I don't think so. I don't think there's any crime fighting going on. No, it's uh, the, people don't trust her. And as Batman says as we go through the issue, she's she's not bad. Mm. She's okay, isn't it? In fact, Oracle and Huntress's antagonistic relationship's actually quite funny. Mm. That was really good. I do have to say, as well, speaking of Huntress, Jim Lee does make her look pretty cool. Because she's got one of those masks that rises up off the top of the head, you know, like Electro's does. And in the wrong hands, this can look really silly. Yeah. But credit to Jim Lee, he makes it look pretty good. The rest of the costume makes very little sense, though. With the belly bit. Yeah, there's. she's got, like, cloth that comes down her sides... And connects to her leggings or whatever it is that she's wearing. And exposes her belly, which just seems silly. And then the belt is over her naked skin. Wouldn't that chafe when she's doing all this kicking and moving and and stuff? I mean, I I do wish they'd just get women in to design women's costumes. Yeah. I'm not saying they can't be sexy. But sexy and practical wouldn't go amiss. Yeah. Although, how practical is Batman costume with that big cape, really? It's, it's not 
So, you know, that's fun. And all the times Batman's been topless having sword fights in the desert? Yeah, yeah, alright, if you're going to be like that, I suppose. <laughs> um, I did like that Huntress really didn't appreciate being called Batgirl. I thought that was, that was really quite funny. Mm. <laughs> and then he gets heaved into the car by Huntress because he can't move, and they are watched by a man. I did like the bit where he's <coughs> lifting him up and she says he feels all broken and weird. Yeah, that's pretty good, that. I mean, it does beg the question how broken he was, because next issue he's up and around again. Maybe Tommy Elliott's just that good. All right, fair enough. Well, we never heard from him again. Where was he when Nightfall happened? Could have come in useful then, <laughs> wouldn't he? Yeah, he Hey, is. look, Bruce has broke his back. I know. Bruce had a friend in childhood, says Alfred. He's become a master neurosurgeon. Yeah. I will give him a ring. But, but Sandra Consilvonging's Sil- Sil- here. Consilvonging. She's mentioned in this. Yes, she is. She does get a mention it, which was nice that they, they made a nightfall reference. See, there we go. Maybe it's either one or the other. It's either Elliot or Consilvonging. They're the only two neurosurgeons in the DC universe. Yes. <laughs> Everyone else is a crime fighter at night. <laughs> yeah, alright. Alright, that, that, that's fair enough. Uh, the man that is watching them, as we were saying, has bandages all around his head and a long trench coat, which proves one thing. Jim Lee never got out of the 90s with regards to his costume designs. <laughs> he didn't, did he? Bad guy equals trench coat. Yeah, in addition to the trench coat, which he stole from Gambit, we know he's the bad guy because he quotes somebody, in this case Aristotle. Is it not incredibly cliched that the bad guy quotes either Shakespeare or a philosopher? It's bad guy rhetoric. Yeah. Is that line in Star Trek 6 when that Klingon's always quoting Shakespeare and Dr. McCoy said, I'd give real money if he just shut up. <laughs> And I, I got to the point where I was thinking about that with Hush. Yeah. Live up to your name, dude. <laughs> Shut up. That's why he's whispering. Yeah, uh, fair enough. Poison Ivy hands home half the money to the guy wearing the trench coat. Hmm. Should we analyse the clues thus far? Shall we? Yes, let's. Batman's line was cut by person or persons unknown. Right. We know that. By a flying object. By a flying object. Yeah. We know that. Shadowy figure shows up with bandages over his face and quotes philosopher. Okay. Ivy has manipulated Catwoman into helping so it's someone we know which would explain why the bandages are all over his face yeah because otherwise it would give it away wouldn't it it was if he didn't have the bandages he's just so they're going I'm going to do a massive mystery but I'm going to cover my face with bandages because the readers might know who I am yes that's exactly what he thought <laughs> when he was putting all this together it's someone who can get close enough to Batman to do this to him right which as I pointed out Mr. I'm prepared for everything probably wouldn't allow Ivy may also have a connection with him then we're introduced to a previously never mentioned best friend of Bruce who happens to be a great brain surgeon. Do you think he's going to be either A, the bad guy, or B, killed? Or C, both of the above? <laughs> I, I don't know, I'd say Riddler, but that's just completely <laughs> That just is completely out of left field. It dude. really is, yeah. It could actually work. It's so completely incredible. No, it couldn't work at all. Yeah, alright, maybe, maybe you're right. As Michael mentioned, Chandra Kinsolving... Is mentioned. Uh, it's mentioned that she got better. Yeah. That's it. That's all it says. She got better. Those, <laughs> From, those are our excuses. <laughs> yeah. She would. Yeah. Not a professional writer. <laughs> yeah. You know. All right. Fair enough. Speaking of nightfall, the old excuse of Bruce crashing the Porsche is trotted out again as cover for his injuries, which they did in Nightfall. They smashed up the Porsche with the mallets. You remember? How many Porsches does he have? two less now <laughs> one would imagine the washed out technique that Jim Lee uses for the flashbacks is pretty is pretty exceptional yeah isn't it it is 
that's some of the best artwork I've ever seen from it. It's watercolours with black paint. It's really, really good. Because what does that look like in the unwrapped version? I'll, I'll get it. Does it just look exactly the same? More or less, but there's no colour to it. It's just black and white. Right. Colour was added in later. All right, fair enough. Well, it makes sense, I suppose. See? Right, yeah, so in black and white, it just doesn't look any different apart from it's coloured. Yeah. So he has done watercolours, actual genuine watercolours for those pages. Brilliant. And there's yeah. nice bits where <coughs> it mixes up present day and the previous days with the flashbacks and the present day stuff yeah so half a page watercolours half of its pencils yeah the watercolours are gorgeous they really are very very good um Tommy and Bruce were both strategic fans which we learn in the flashback yeah strategy yeah those strategy fans I wonder if that's a clue knowing your enemy's weakness yeah yeah lantern (laughs) let's hang you here bad guy on the last page is is it spawn well, I don't know. He's got a big coat Is on it. Is it Looks like a big cape. <laughs> he quotes Aristotle again. See, he looks like Spawn, though, do you know He's got a little spiky cheekbone yeah. as well. We can see that he's cutting something up with what looks like a batarang. Duh. Uh, and thus, a major plot point cometh. Yeah. Clever, isn't it? It is. Or maybe not. No. Depends <laughs> on your point of view, I don't know. <laughs> uh, actually, for all my pithiness in the synopsis, I actually enjoyed this more than the first. And reading yeah. it, synopsising it was a different story, but reading it, I quite enjoyed it. It's starting to set the plot in motion a little bit better, new characters are introduced. And in all fairness to Jeff Loeb, I like that the operation on Bruce was handled quickly. It would have been easy to have Bruce be in bed for five issues. Yeah. But I think that Loeb seems to think, as do I, that that would be really boring. Yeah. <laughs> a really boring comic. There are a few real clues to the bandaged bad guy's ID, but introducing a new character that is a long-time friend of the lead that we've never heard of before is always a little dubious. I think he handles it well by having such a strong backstory to it. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. You do always get the thing stories where they always introduce a new character that you've never heard of before. I think if, if this... It shows the limitation of the arc format... Yeah. If this had been um, a writer who was writing Batman for a while, surely he would have introduced Tommy Elliott much earlier than this. Yeah. So that as when this story got told, it wasn't such a, oh, they've introduced someone we've he's never seen before, guy. or he's going to get killed. Yeah. They're the two options. They're all that's going to happen. If Tommy had been, like, Bronze Age comics... And Tommy had been introduced like a year, two years before this story. Yeah. And he'd become a regular member of the supporting cast. Maybe then it would have worked a little bit better for him. He had important golf tournaments. He did, because he's a doctor. And that's all doctors <laughs> and do. And all of his skiing holidays too. Oh yeah, all of his <laughs> the skiing holidays. Yeah. What do you think about part two? I enjoyed it. It, it focuses more on Bruce Wayne and Tommy Elliot than Batman, though. Well, Batman's incapacitated for, for most that, of the yeah. issue. So. Right. Issue 610 cover dated February 2003 as Batman and Killer Croc getting all up close and personal in each other's face. Croc's reptilian face is jagged, teeth dominating the cover, and one can hope he doesn't have halitosis as Batman is right there forcing his jaws apart. Think Adam West versus The Gone. <laughs> There's no reason to think that other than it's funny. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's the cop. Yeah. <laughs> I now want to see that. <laughs> Instead of throwing rocks at it, it's the bomb. <laughs> finally got rid of finally the bomb. Got rid of the bomb. Brilliant. 
Chapter 3, The Beast. Batman confronts Croc in Arkham, but Croc manages to escape. It's all a plan for the Batman to follow him, however, arranged with Amanda Waller, head of President Luther's Office of Meta-Human Affairs, who informs Batman that he has 12 hours to catch Croc and find out who's behind all of this. Elsewhere, Tommy Elliot arrives at Wayne Manor to check on Bruce. When Alfred says he's out, sir, Tommy tells Alfred that Bruce is playing a dangerous game. Which could also be a clue, I've just realised. Yeah. The most dangerous game right. is a book about a man who hunts a man. <laughs> okay, I didn't get that. There you go. It's only just comes to me. Alfred flashes back to the past where we learn that Tommy's parents were in a car crash in which his father was killed. Dr. Thomas Wayne operated and saved his mother, but Bruce had promised Tommy that his father would be okay, a promise Dr. Wayne is unable to keep. Tommy seems to have daddy issues. As the Batman follows Croc via an implanted tracker, the Batmobile has its tyres blown out. Batman is unharmed and orders Oracle to not lose Croc's signal as he extricates himself from the burning vehicle. She doesn't, and with her aid, the Batman picks up the trail and follows Croc to the penthouse apartment of Poison Ivy, where Catwoman is waiting. She tells Croc they have both been set up, and she doesn't know where the money is, and Croc decides to kill her because, hey, why not? The Batman almost talks Croc down when Croc reveals he wants the money to cure himself, but Waller's attack force arrive and manage to snatch Killer Croc. Batman feels like he's being watched, but when he turns to look over at the Robinson building, there is no one there. Trenchcoat Man, having seen everything, making a fast fade. The Batman is pleased that Catwoman was not a part of this. Catwoman is pleased to not be dead, and the two of them kiss in the moonlight. Killer Croc also was a trench coat. <laughs> because it's the 90s! Nothing but the 90s. The Batman has arranged with Amanda Waller to let Croc go free to tail him to learn who orchestrated this whole thing, which is fine. But given that Lex Luthor is presently the President of the United States of America at this time, and Batman and Waller don't exactly see eye to eye, one does have to wonder how Batman got them to go along with it. Based upon issues of Suicide Squad and reaffirmed here, Waller and Batman don't actually like each other very much. Which he says, I don't like you. Yeah. Yeah, he's not subtle about it. He was very funny, though. He's quite on the nose, yeah. And uh, he's got cut off Daisy Dukes as well, because that's what every good killer crap was. I don't think that poster. A trench coat and Daisy Dukes. Yes, a trench coat and Daisy Dukes. It's a look. Yeah. Isn't it? (laughs) Speaking of Amanda Waller, I think we should address Amanda Waller. Pre New 52, Amanda Waller is portrayed as a 40 ish heavy set black woman. She was a formidable character in pre-New 52, especially in Suicide Squad. Not afraid of anything, doesn't take any guff, but honourable in her own way. In the New 52 she's a skinny supermodel type proving to me anyway that there's only one specific kind of diversity that DC Entertainment are interested in promoting and that's that everyone has to be attractive and under 29 years of age except Alfred. Alfred gets given a pass, and Perry White. Yeah. Perry, although Perry looks a lot younger nowadays as well. The fact that Arrow cast Spartacus actress Cynthia Adai Robinson, who is young, skinny, and attractive, as Amanda Waller, and this is considered good casting, tells you everything that's wrong about the current incarnation of Amanda Waller. They should. Do you know who they should have cast? Uh, Patricia Belcher, who was the neighbour in Good Luck Charlie. Right. She would have been Amanda Waller. Okay. You know the one I mean? No. Oh. You know what you could have good luck to Ellie, didn't you? I don't know. That's a shame. Anyway, she would have been great. She'd have been a fantastic Amanda Waller. Tommy Ellett rocks up at Wayne Manor 
Alfred's dialogue is exceptionally funny yeah. in this sequence. Uh, Loeb really has a good handle on Alfred, I think. I do find it funny how Alfred looks surprised when he sees him at the door, even though Oracle told him who it was. Yeah, well, you know. It maybe he's just acting, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. I love his line. I had uh, I'd forgotten your delightful penchant for calling me Alf, oddly enough. That was funny. I like that. That was good. Uh, you can read Tommy Elliott's dialogue with a, a sinister undertone. Yes, yeah. If you if you so desire. He says he's playing a dangerous game because he knows he's Batman. Yes, yes, he does. When did he find that out? I don't know. No, having read all twelve issues, I still don't know that. Um, <laughs> when he did his bandaged hooliganery. When he did his bandaged hooliganery. Yes. But he caused him to fall before he did the bandage hooliganery. Maybe. Okay. Go on, no prize this, dude. I don't know. Maybe he made Batman fall just so he can come into... Yeah, right. He's he's doctoring days aren't looking so great. He's not got enough money to go on a ski and just goes, I know. (laughs) I know my mate, my childhood mate, is secretly Batman, so I'm going to orchestrate... How does he know that? Because he knows his enemy's weakness. He just woke up one morning and went, Bruce Wayne, he's Batman! Clark Kent, Superman. (laughs) So he orchestrates the fall just so he can come back and bring him back to life. Alright, fair enough. Another one of the watercoloured flashbacks follows, this time purple, and again it's gorgeous. I kind of wish Lee had done this same kind of art all the way through, don't you? Yeah. Because it it really is fantastic. Tommy's parents are in a car crash and Dr. Thomas Wayne is to operate. Bruce promises they're going to be okay. This will not end well. Of course, Mr. Elliot dies and Tommy blames Bruce. It's pretty obvious at this point that Tommy has been set up as either the bad guy or he's going to die. Hmm. Are you two options? Yeah. No other options. I originally wondered what Killer Croc needed with money. Yeah. When they found out what Killer Croc was up to, but in the original pre-crisis incarnation, he was a gangster, wasn't he? Mm. If memory serves, and originally he killed Jason Todd's parents. Remember? No. no. Killer Croc killed Jason Todd's parents pre-crisis. Uh, 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 maybe the Jeff Loeb knows that. Yeah, maybe he's just tying it. Yeah. All in. Another clue. Another clue. Yeah, but it's a clue from another universe. So it doesn't really <laughs> count, does it? I wouldn't have thought that version of Croc was interested in cold hard cash. Post-crisis, I don't recall him having much motivation other than murder-death kill. I, I've said I prefer murder-death murder kill. kill. Yeah, demolition man. Yeah. I actually prefer this, the pre-crisis version of cock. This is of cock. <laughs> Everybody likes cock. I, I prefer the pre-crisis killer croc. Which one do you prefer? Well, in this one he says he wants the money to stop being mutated. Which, does that just make him a cut-price version of the lizard? He is anyway, though, isn't he? But he wasn't pre-crisis. But now he's turned into a giant monster, which they've also turned the lizard into. Yeah, so, you know. Somebody blows out the tyres on the Batmobile and it crashes, so whoever the mystery man is, he's definitely trying to kill Batman. Another point worth mentioning. He's a really bad shot. Yes, at numerous points (laughs) during this story, he has chances to kill him and doesn't. Yeah, well, maybe maybe he's just a really bad shot. He was aiming for his head, but he hit the rope. No, 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 no. The tyre that he blows out is the tyre that Jason Todd was stealing right. in his post-crisis origin. It is another clue. Right. Hmm. Because, if there's one thing we know about Jason Todd, yeah. he was stealing the wheels off the Batmobile. That's his <laughs> defining characteristic, <laughs> isn't it? That has become the thing. What does Batman do with this blown-up Batmobile? 
Does he have a contingency plan for this? Does he just leave it there? Or he, does he have someone come and tow it away? Does he not fix it up in a later issue? Oh, I'm not... Yes, we must pick it. But who goes and picks it up? Alfred. That's Alfred going a tow truck. Oh, what's his face? <laughs> the, the hunchback guy. Harold. Harold, yeah. Harold, Harold is still around, is he? Because <laughs> he's not mentioned anywhere in these issues, is he? No, I, th- I think he might be still... Do you think like, Harold's still just pottering around in the cave? He got lost in the like cave. Like crusty old Alfred. He's following the train tracks <laughs> of the cave... <laughs> He's, he's following trying, the back train to Clarksville, he, is he? He's trying to find Gene Paul still. <laughs> or he's trying to avoid Gene Paul. Yeah. He still thinks Gene Paul's yeah. Batman. That makes his story make so much more sense. <laughs> oh, dear me. Batman's battle with Croc. He's been watched by Trenchcoat Man, who again quotes Aristotle. While standing on a rooftop that has a large neon sign next to him that spells out the name Robin. Yeah. Talk about literally spelling it out for the us. The bandit man is definitely not the Riddler. <laughs> that you think? Yeah. De- I don't know who he is, but he's definitely not the Riddler. <laughs> okay, same as part two. It was okay. It was a pretty fast read. It's a little bit obvious for a mystery. Trenchcoat Man tries to kill Batman. Batman seems not at all interested in tracking Trenchcoat Man down. It's not awful, but this issue doesn't really progress anything other than establishing... Alfred and Tommy Elliot's relationship, which doesn't go anywhere, so it doesn't matter. It's 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 fine. It's it's all right, isn't it? Yeah, it's, I did, it's I did okay. like the Alfred bits. Yeah, the Alfred bits are really good. We've been given a reason for Tommy to to dislike Bruce, the death of his mum. I don't get stupid. that he dislikes him. No, that again, that doesn't go anywhere. You're you're given that reason for him not liking him, but because we never learn where he learned Bruce Wayne was Batman. I read his, his dad dying more as a... It's something he and Bruce shares. So they both had that tragedy. Which is interesting because they flip it the other way around later. Yeah. But we'll talk about that when we get to the end. I've got a note about that when we get to the end. Do you know, I think as a mystery, though, it's a little bit of a bust. Yeah, yeah. At the moment, there's one suspect for who Bandage Guy is. Two. There's Tommy Elliot. And? Yeah, but for the other suspect to work... Yeah. You have to be a long-time reader of Batman. But for the other suspect to work, he'd need to be Not be alive. dead. Yeah. Because <laughs> he is very definitely dead. He's really most sincerely dead. Yeah. At this point, I think. Yeah, alright. You, you, you just going to say that one's okay as well? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Issue 611 has a cover in the shadow of Gotham's Towers. The Batman, almost all shadow, clutches the corners of his cape and is all moody whilst Catwoman stands before him all tied up in ivy. She's bound and gagged. There is absolutely no BDSM subtext to this cover at all. Chapter 4, The City. Bruce arrives in Metropolis, ostensibly on business, but in actuality to locate Poison Ivy, who is here for no other reason than to pit Superman versus Batman and give Jim Lee something cool to draw. He bumps into Tommy Elliott on the flight, and they recall that time they were in Metropolis as kids and saw Green Lantern, Alan Scott version. Bruce drops by the Daily Planet, which he now owns, and uses their computer system to check in with Oracle, Batman not being in possession of a mobile phone. Poison Ivy was growing Aztec Gilia back in Gotham, and it requires ethylene to grow indoors. As this is produced at LexCorp, the Batman drops in on the new CEO, Talia Al Ghul, and procures information on who has bought large quantities of same very recently. He teams up with Catwoman to bring Ivy down, but Ivy has a new disciple, Superman. Uh, Superman! One of the character beats I've liked most about the post-crisis Bruce Wayne was his ambivalence 
towards Metropolis. Whilst they did a good job setting up Bruce and Lexi's antagonistic relationship, they do move in the same circles. Bruce just didn't like Metropolis. Yeah. It's too bright and the sun never goes down and it's always well it's lit. It's always and, bright yeah. to bring up later. Yeah, it's not. It's just not his bag, is it? Mm. And I'm not a fan of Superman and Batman that are always at odds with each other. I did like that Bruce doesn't feel at home anywhere but Gotham. Yeah. I thought that was a nice little I, character. I beat. like how he went there with Bruce Wayne. Especially seeing as he now owns the planet, so he's got business interests in Metropolis. Yeah, but Tommy Elliot just shows up because flashback. Yeah, he's, he's, we're four chapters into this and Tommy Elliot's nothing but a plot device. Yeah. We've been given rather obvious reason for him to dislike Bruce. Bruce, Bruce. My name is Bruce. <laughs> Although that's never really followed up on, and he's been retconned into Bruce's life as being important, despite never being mentioned before. It's not an egregious retcon, really. It's not like Murray Jane always knowing Peter Parker was Spider-Man, or, or I don't know, Norman Shagwen. <laughs> but it does beg the question of going back when you read Nightfall, doesn't it? Well, why did they not call Tommy Elliot? It works better as just its own story. Well, that's what it's designed to. It's written for a trade, isn't it? Yeah. That's the point of it. It's not written really to go into the ongoing narrative that is Batman's life, even though it does refer back to previous adventures. And it does work yeah. in and of this storyline. I've not been really been given any reason to care for him. I like him. Do you? Why? Yeah. Why? What has he done as a writer to make you like him? I, I like his relationship with Bruce. I like the dialogues. I like the, fl- the flashbacks. I, 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 I like him and his relationship to, to Bruce. Alright, fair So if it worked for you, maybe I'm just missing something. Yeah. It's entirely possible. Is it coincidence Tommy arrives in Metropolis just as Bruce does? Yes. Or is there something more sinister? Um, golf tournament. <laughs> <laughs> the Metropolis Open. Yeah. Is that happening at this precise moment? It, it happens from skyscraper rooftop. <laughs> There's a hole in another skyscraper rooftop. Oh, dear God. You've got to be able to think like your opponent, says Tommy in flashback, which in addition to being a very mature thing for an eight-year-old to say, ties in with Tommy and Bruce playing strategic war games in the last issue. Another clue, Mm. mayhaps. You know what I find quite funny? How much of a a, a teenage boy Bruce Wayne is. Oh, my God, Catwoman kissed me every other panel. Oh, my God, we kissed. <laughs> He's not very good with women. Though, it, it gets to the point that every other panel is, oh, we kissed, and another flashback to him and Catwoman kissing. It's, we get it. It is kind of hard to think that this is the same Batman that Steve Englehart wrote, isn't yeah. it? Who was, you know, him and Silver St. Cloud were, were experimenting with many different bat positions from the <laughs> Batma Sutra. This, this, Batman, this Batman probably shaves his chest. <laughs> oh, no. No, he doesn't. This Batman's a hurry man guard. <laughs> this Batman does not Batmanscape. I'm not having none of that. That's just ridiculous. Uh, Does this fit in with JSA continuity? I don't know. Me neither. But I liked this being Alan Scott, Green Lantern. Yeah, well, that's that, I liked it, and it's a lovely piece of artwork. But you don't get this in the New 52. It's what yeah, that doesn't yeah. exist anymore. This is what the New 52's lost. Whether you like it or not, this kind of history has, has been gotten rid of by the New 52. And if they did retell it, it, it can't be Hal Jordan. No, well, that, that, my thing with this was, would Alan Scott have been Green Lantern in 1983? Which, if this was published in 2003, and we presume this is 20 years earlier, which it roughly is, was Alan Scott Green Lantern in 1983? No, Hal Jordan was. Exactly. So, but Batman was also <laughs> around then. Yeah. But haven't they said that... But even with the sliding timeline... Yeah. How was he in World War II if he was... They said that they right. had like, an agency room Did they? Or something. Oh, that was just Nick Fury. 
Do you have a... All right, fair enough. It was a lovely bit, and it's an exceptionally exquisite piece of artwork. Yeah. It's the watercolour stuff. And I love that it's all bleached out apart from Green Lantern, mm. who's in colour. It's absolutely... It is a, it's a gorgeous splash page. Bruce references Metropolis becoming literally a new city overnight, a reference to the Y2K Superman story art. Did, like, it, did it become a new city overnight? Yeah. Right. Y2K virus thing destroyed all of old Metropolis and rebuilt a new one because of Brainiac. Right. And uh, Tommy quotes from the first Sam Raimi Spider-Man movie when he tells Bruce that uh, you're not Superman, you know. I got that because he's saying you're Batman, not Superman. Yeah, a clue. Yeah, yeah. Or just quoting Tom Raimi's Spider-Man movie. <laughs> I don't know. You um, unless that really, really annoyed Bruce and he went home and cried. <laughs> of what we're talking about earlier. I'm not Superman. He has all those powers. I got nothing. But I got to kiss Catwoman. <laughs> Again, Bruce! <laughs> Shut up! There's a whole uh, page of it here! A whole page of him just eyeing up cattle. In the Daily Planet building, Lois has a newspaper on the wall proclaiming Jeff Loeb to do Mr. Miracle. Which, as far as I'm aware, <laughs> never actually happened, unless they're talking about, you know. It was, Arnold. It was an awkward moment. Ah, they never speak of it again. <laughs> no. And there's a reference to Divine Right, which I think was a Jim Lee comic book at some point and there's various posts about bets and money owed to various different people I presume they're in jokes was, there, was there a picture that showed Superman in his, his red trunks that causes massive controversy when did Bruce Wayne buy the Daily Planet I don't know oh, okay, I was I hoping you'd tell me I, no I don't remember that at all it was handled well enough for those who didn't know yeah, it was basically one line of dialogue. I own the Daily Planet. Yeah. I mean, you went, oh, okay. <laughs> Bruce Wayne owns the Daily Planet. So basically, Superman. This goes back to his inadequacy again. <laughs> the only way he can think to get super, get one over on him it's is to the be the guy who pays him. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you may have all these superpowers and stuff, and I may be jealous and envious of you, and I've got Cape Envy, but I pay your paycheck, dude. <laughs> Do you know that totally works, doesn't it? Uh, Loeb doesn't quite quotes Superman the movie here but he pays it lip service with Lois asking how you spell rapist plus there's a nod to Smallville when Lois tells Clark to enjoy being all tights and flights the spelling bit is cute because it doubles as a nod to the film but also works as a character beat that Lois isn't the best speller in the world but the tights and flights gag was a bit of a groaner Yeah, it's just not natural is it it just doesn't naturally flow out of your mouth that you say, go and enjoy being all tights and flights. <laughs> I'm making an in-reference. Up, up and away. Yeah, it don't, it don't really work, does it? No. The, the, how do you spell rapist bit was funny. The therapist. Yeah, that, the was, that was quite good. The last act runs pretty fast after the opening scenes. Loeb takes time to set up Bruce arriving in Metropolis and what he and Catwoman are doing there. He didn't bother explaining why Ivy was in Metropolis. But basically this series just seems to revolve around what Jim Lee wants to draw this week rather than being a competent narrative in its own right. Tommy drops a few lines that make you go, hmm, but Hush himself doesn't actually appear in this issue and his story isn't advanced in any way. The Catwoman Batman sexual tension stuff is nicely played and Loeb writes a lovely Lois and Clark, but by and large this chapter doesn't really serve any purpose in and of itself. Not confuse me more than Bruce Wayne owning the Daily Planet. What? Talia Al Ghul owning LexCorp. Uh, Talia doesn't own. I remember that. Yeah. Talia is made CEO of LexCorp when Lex becomes president. Right. So he doesn't actually own it. What confused me about that is why is she Talia head? 
Because Al Ghul translates to head. Uh, but what's wrong with Talia Al Ghul? Well... Because that would actually be her name. But going around being the head of Lexco when your dad is a big global terrorist. Yeah, it's not her fault, dude. Sins of the father cannot be imposed upon the sins of the child or something. Oh, fair enough, yeah. So, Talia Al Ghul, as far as I know, he's not an international global eco-terrorist. You know what is quite cool? The pencil version. Yes. Right. Find the page where Catwoman leaves Batman on the train. Look at it on the pencil version. He's just penciled the train bit and they've copied and pasted his earlier panel into it. Oh, it, it does say stat, yeah. Yeah. Right, cheap. What a cheaper. I know, yeah. He's statted that. And Batman's thinking about kissing Catwoman again. There's a, there's <laughs> he's got a one-trap mind. There's a great bit in the next issue, though, where they're in the underground bit. Mm. And Jim Lee's just penciled all over the walls. Uh, Lexco logo here. Lexco logo here. It's It'll all be done in computer, won't yeah, it? So. It's the same in the newspaper. He's just roughed out a newspaper and they've done all the typing. Yeah, they'll do it. all of that in post now. It won't be done by the artist. I presume you were just, yeah, it was alright. It was a good issue, yeah. don't get me wrong. I mean, it seemed like I didn't enjoy that one, but I did. I like all those Clark, Superman, Batman, Bruce character yeah. moments. I like all the Lois Lane, Clark, flirty stuff. I like all the, the stuff in the Daily Planet. All but that it, stuff's good. It only really picks up mm. later on, though. But it's like, there's an entire issue, though, where the story doesn't really move forward that quickly. A lot of it is, it starts off being cool Batman, but then it goes down to Bruce Wayne. And it's like that for a few issues. Yeah, it seems to settle down into villain du jour, doesn't it? Yeah. Every month. It's, it's not bad. I'm not going to say it's terrible. Issue 6 12 depicts Superman standing, posing, clenching Batman's neck in his Kryptonian grasp as Batman falls to his knees, his hands around Superman's massive forearm. Technically proficient, other than the fact that both Superman and Batman have no wrists, the forearms are just one big muscle. It's eye catching enough in that way that Superman-Batman fights are intriguing to the comics-reading audience. What do you think of it? It looks cool. At least... That's I'm... Jim Lee's art, in a nutshell, yeah. isn't it? It looks cool. But he's, he's Superman doesn't have glowing red eyes. That's a good point. But he's covered in brooding shadow. Yes, he's a very broody Superman. And he's but S. he's not angry red eye of glowing evil Superman. Yeah, and his ass is wrong. It's a Jim Lee S. Wrong. Why is it wrong? Because well, these, these two lines connect though. What's going on? Oh, right, yeah, yeah. The the top yellow that fish segment is, is not a fish. The top fish has lost its tail. Yeah, that's true. Back in the day, they'd have redrawn that, but Jim Lee's a superstar. So they don't, Jim Lee's a bigger superstar than Jack Kirby. Is They'll it? redraw Jack Kirby, but they don't redraw Jim Lee. Maybe. Everything's wrong with the world, right, though. Maybe Jim Lee can draw a better face than Jack Kirby. Possibly. Can't draw a better S, though. Apparently. <laughs> Ivy's new boy toy, a certain Man of Steel, goes all glowy eyes on Batman and Catwoman, but being the goddamn Batman, the Caped Crusader is prepared. He dives into Metropolis Harbour, and thanks to propellers in his boots, he and Catwoman speed off into the sewer system, which, thanks to Luther, is lead-lined. The Batman calls Oracle and asks if they are positioned correctly, and sends Catwoman off to kidnap someone from the Daily Planet, someone important to Superman. As she runs off, Batman distracts Superman, Superman with a few choice blows thanks to the kryptonite ring he has with him, given to him by Superman back in the Dark Knight over Metropolis storyline. They basically replay the Dark Knight Returns fight, only this time Batman is slightly distracted by his man crush on Tommy Elliot. 
who he thinks about constantly during the battle. Batman only manages to do as well as he does because Superman is fighting Ivy's mind control simultaneously, and because he tells Superman that he's opened a gas main. So much of a hint of heat vision and the block goes kablooey. Of course, the Batman lied about that and lures Superman into the electrical grid, the location of which he got from Oracle earlier, and fries Superman. This causes a momentary distraction so Batman can bugger off and lead Superman to the Daily Planet building where, of course, Catwoman has picked Lois Lane to be her damsel of choice. Lois, being Lois, fights back and plummets to her doom from atop the building, but Superman snaps out of his mind control and rescues her. Batman explains what's going on. Ivy managed to use synthetic green K in her lipstick, but Batman has no idea who supplied her with it. Batman still has Ivy around his neck and they use crypto to sniff her out. Ivy isn't saying much, but from across the block, our mysterious bandaged figure watches and mimics Superman's last words to Batman. What are friends for? Apparently they're for putting your wife in mortal danger and using a gift you gave them against you. That's what friends are for. Well, when you're brainwashed. <laughs> By poison ivy and her massive balloon boobs. It's later explained that Ivy mind controls Superman with synthetic green K in her lipstick. Yes. Right? Yeah. How did she get close enough to Superman to apply this, and what did Lois say about it? Um, you see, things in the, the, Clark, the Kent <laughs> homestead... Open relationship. ...has been going quite south. <laughs> Yeah, oh yeah, don't worry about it, Lois. Poison Ivy just kissed... Uh, uh, Poison Ivy just touched me. You see, Lois married Clark Kent, not Superman. Ah, right. Whatever okay. happens in the cape... <laughs> Stays in the cape. <laughs> yeah. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Any mess on Superman's cape? <laughs> I don't recall if glowy red-eyed Superman was a cliche or not at this point. I'll give them benefit of the doubt because they only do it once. Yeah. So I'll say it's not cliche yet. And I do like that the word balloon when Ivy says no is transparent. Mm. And you can actually see through it. I like that a great deal. I thought that was great. My problem with this one... Okay. Batman is prepared for being in Metropolis. Getting into a fight with Superman that will lead him to flee into the harbour, necessitating packing his back boots with propellers in them, and then into the sewer, sorry, to a particular location in the sewer where he can fight Superman and stun him, and later on he's prepared for Superman freeze-breathing his arm and has a device that melts the ice around his glove, right? Yes. That is an awful lot of stuff to have anticipated. He knows everything. Because he's the goddamn Batman. Yeah. It highlights one of the things we've talked about before. This this makes Batman more unbelievable. Yeah. The propellers in his boots. Maybe that's why he wears a new pair of boots every day. Because <laughs> they've all got something else in them. Jetpacks. Ice skates, if you charge Clooney. Springs, if yeah. you want to reach that high. Well, Harley Quinn has springs in her boots. Yeah, yeah. Which, as we'll see in the very next issue. I'd, I mean, don't get me wrong, the bat propeller boots made me laugh. But I mean, don't, it's not a bat credit card. There is that. Don't sit there and tell me Batman is the most realistic superhero. <laughs> yeah. And then so yeah, because he's got bat propeller boots. Well, Iron Man, in the early days, had... Had, had roll- roller skates in his boots. Roller skates in his boots and little jetpack booster <laughs> things in the back of them. Yeah, but that's just cool, <laughs> isn't it? Uh, the splash page, Batman's robbing Green Lantern shtick. Yeah. It does look like he's going to say in Blackest Day, though, doesn't it? <laughs> Darkest Night. Yeah. Uh, also, Batman's prepared for all of this, but didn't have a contingency for his backline breaking. Just going to mention <laughs> that one more time. Lex Lothar. Lex Lothar. Lo- Mr. Lothar. <laughs> Is that not a shoe brand? Lex yeah. Lothar. Lex has bought Lothar shoes. <laughs> Lex Luthor 
coated all of Metropolis's sewer systems with lead lining. Did Metropolis taxpayers pay for that? Yes. <laughs> Were they pleased about this? Oh. That Lex used all of them? Another crazy Luthor agenda. <laughs> You're selling the lead lined agenda, Luthor. I liked it, but. <laughs> <laughs> It's a bit daft, isn't it? Just a little bit. It's not the most daftest thing in this issue. No, no, no. That's bat propeller boots, <laughs> quite frankly. <laughs> Gloriously ridiculous though they were. It propels them along the story. <laughs> and they've gone swimming in a sewer. Do they not smell? Just a little bit. Yeah. Although it, it's the, how Superman knows where they are. It, it has to be said, though, Metropolis sewers are really, really clean. Yeah. Aren't they? <laughs> Maybe that's why Superman knows where Batman and Catwoman are, because he can't see through lead. Yeah. He just sniffs them out. Yeah, but they forget about these super sniffs. Ah, Batman, you really do stink a piss. <laughs> Thanks to Kevin Smith. <laughs> Batman thinks about his man crush Tommy Elliot twice in this issue, probably just to remind the readers that Tommy's supposed to be important, given that we're six issues in and he's had two scenes in the present and two flashbacks. At least he's not stroking his bat belt over Catwoman anymore. That's true. That at least he's not constantly thinking about kissing Catwoman like he's a 15-year-old pre-hormonal schoolboy. In the middle of the fight with Superman and later, Ivy's at the hotel where he and Tommy stayed as kids. There's only one hotel in Metropolis. So we should take this moment to reflect what we've learned about Trenchcoat Man since we last did this <laughs> two issues ago. Batman's line was cut, causing Batman to fall into crime alley, and the Batmobile had its tyres shot out by person or persons unknown. Shadowy figure shows up with bandages over over his face and quotes philosophy normally from a distance. He likes standing on rooftops with neon signs that spell out Robin. He has manipulated a number of bat villains into helping or paid a number to do so. So it's someone we know, hence the bandages, and someone who can get close to Batman. We are then introduced to a previously never mentioned best friend of Bruce who happens to be a great brain surgeon just as Bruce needs one. He's in the area normally when Tommy Elliot is. So basically I'm saying we've learned nothing new in three issues. My vote is still definitely not the Riddler. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely... Of all the people Hush can be, it's not the Riddler. Yeah. You're 99.9% certain. I'm 100% certain. That it's, it's not. You know who it could be? It could actually be... Right. It could be anyone at this point. Remember in that Superman story, that Batman story where Superman was stood on the roof but had horns and then completely lost them again in the next panel? Yeah. It's Superman. You're right. Yeah. Okay. For, yeah, it was downhill from a trapper. Right, yeah. Yeah, we covered that for Happy Birthday Super. I like Catwoman's line about Lois not being very good at this damsel in distress stuff. Yeah. Which I thought I would was have thought good. Catwoman would have explained. Superman's possessed come with us yeah. pretend to be you'd, you'd yeah. have thought she would have said it just, it's only pretend I'm not really going to hurt you yeah wouldn't you but apparently not Lois Lane speaking of is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and author has she risen to the top of her profession in a predominantly man's world how has she done this through tenacity guts and raw talent no she was a micro skirt and cleavage busting top that shows off her underwear to the office um, gravity, wind. You reckon? Yeah. I mean, there's nothing wrong with what Lois is worried for, say, a night out. Yeah. And, you know, Lois is an independent woman. She's allowed to wear whatever she wants. She has a good figure. She's allowed to show it off. Wear what you're comfortable with. Blah, blah, blah. I just don't think she would wear that to the office. Yeah. Seems a little she, bit maybe, too... Maybe she knew Bruce Wayne was coming in today. Well, she does have a thing for Bruce, doesn't she, in the animated series. Yeah. All right, she thought she knew Bruce was coming, so she thought, I'll show off my cleavage, and I'll show off my legs. Is, is that also Bruce Wayne trying to one-up Superman? I'll buy out where he works, and I'll win his wife over. <laughs> I'll buy out where he works, and I'll do Catwoman. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, fair enough. She turned into a ghost, but she'll be burning before the night is done. Oh, 
I didn't get why they needed crypto. I mean, it's nice to see crypto. <laughs> it's always nice to see crypto. The, no, no good detective work can be a dog <laughs> sniffing out um, synthetic kryptonite. Could, could Superman's X-ray vision just not have found her? She's in a lead-lined room. No, she isn't! <laughs> and even if she was, that'd make it stand out more! That being said, it could be a Lex Luthor safe house, though. She's in a hotel! A lead Probably under hotel. the name Poison Ivy! <laughs> <laughs> she's not very bright! She's bright green. <laughs> yeah, she's bright green. Yeah, um, this is a post-Frank Miller Batman-Superman fight. It reads exactly like Frank Miller wrote it. I'm having a really hard time thinking Batman could punch Superman this many times, Kevlar gloves be damned, and not break his hands. And it's another example of post-Miller writers using Superman to show how cool Batman is. As an example of that type, it doesn't suck. Loeb at least tries to explain why Batman could hold on for so long, even if the explanation doesn't really hold water. But Batman deliberately puts Lois in danger. Yes, he does it for a good reason, but the bottom line is he still does it. The fights are adequately choreographed and moderately exciting to read. The final two pages of Batman and Superman hanging around, posing for each other. But the final <laughs> conversation is supposed to be Superman being, oh, how typically Batman of you. But there's a part of me that's wanted Superman to punch Batman into space for endangering his wife. <laughs> yeah. He never, he, just, he gets a little bit of a cursory mention, doesn't it? Yeah. Oh, how oh, Batman, oh, you're a <laughs> wag. Almost getting my wife killed. Oh, how dark night of you. <laughs> You know, is that what Clark Kent does when he walks into his bedroom to see them together? <laughs> oh, Bruce. oh, how Bruce Wayne! Is this for your cover <laughs> as a playboy? You're shaggy, my wife. Um, <laughs> this issue exists only to get Jim Lee to draw a Superman Batman fight. Yeah, which is fine. You know, it doesn't really move the story along, but you know, we're no further along in learning who Trenchcoat Man is. But you know, the only reason it doesn't slow the pace down is it doesn't really have a pace at this point. Yeah. This is a little two-issue interlude in the middle of a 12-part story. It's a series of unrelated events grafted onto a whodunit. It's good. Mm. I enjoyed reading it, but I couldn't help but keep going, all right, how does Hush play into all of this? Yeah. Where is he? Who is he? More clues, please. Maybe I'm just impatient. I don't know. Issue 613 has a cover date of May 2003 and shows Batman holding Catwoman, Cyclops and Jean Grey, or Superman and Supergirl style, depending on your preference. Her face is bloodied as Harley Quinn in a poster on the wall behind Batman points a gun directly at his head. Why is there a poster of Harley Quinn pointing a gun pinned up rather randomly in an alleyway? Yeah... Um, What's that all about? What I want to know is, if Harley Quinn is part of the poster, why is she sticking? Why is she on top of the Batman logo and the rest of the poster isn't? Oh, that's just artistic license. I can forgive that. Is it, it's a 3D poster. Yeah, it is. There you go. There's your no prize explanation. Nah, it's a bad poster, actually. Yeah, it's terrible. Harley Quinn only takes up a third of the poster. Yeah. Most of the poster is just a city. Take it as a poster. Yeah. In the middle of an alleyway, you'd be sat going, what? What's that advertising? So if we're learning anything, Jim Lee can't draw posters. Yeah. It's a nice cover, though, but the poster's crap. Yeah. Chapter 6, The Opera. At the Gotham City Opera House, Bruce takes a road night off to attend a charity opera performance to benefit Leslie Tompkins Park Row Clinic. He's escorting Selena Kyle and Tommy Elliott is escorting Leslie. The performance is ruined by an appearance by Harley Quinn, this issue's character on Jim Lee's bucket list. Tommy attracts attention to himself, bringing out a mobile phone, and Harley, after admiring Selena's backless, classless, strap 
topless little black dress, kicks Tommy's phone from his hand and steals a necklace that Bruce remembers as a gift from Tommy's mother that young Tommy nearly beat young Bruce up over. Rather than accept Harley's thievery, Tommy pushes her off the balcony and Harley, a tad upset by this, goes off the charts and opens fire. The distraction allows for Bruce to slip away and for Leslie to tell Selina to do the same. The urban legend that is the Batman appears in public at the opera in front of everybody with mobile phones who can take pictures to slap Harley down but she manages to get the upper hand due to his still sore head. Catwoman saves his life before Harley can pop a cap in him but takes a hit herself and then he's thrown from the balcony. Batman shakes off possible concussion because he's the goddamn Batman and saves Catwoman who berates him for doing so and letting Harley flee. Leslie runs up to help Catwoman and tells the Batman to stop Harley. Tommy Elliot has also pursued Harley and as the Batman chases them both a shot rings out. That's how you make an entrance, states the Joker, standing over Tommy Elliot's dead and bleeding body. <gasps> so he can't be the bad guy, he's dead? It's, and it's still definitely not the Riddler. And it's still definitely not the Riddler. That's what you're going with, isn't it? Uh, we've said before Loeb excels at the Batman-Alfred-Bruce Wayne relationship. Under his pen, Alfred's snark is funny yet loving rather than caustic and unlikable. The scene in the opening panel of page one where Alfred reacts to Bruce's thoughts is an excellent example of how well this gentleman's gentleman knows his boss. Although I would argue that's probably the wrong word for what Alfred and Bruce are. When written correctly, they have one of the best father-son, big brother-little brother relationships in comics. When written and incorrectly we have Alfred as snarky and unlikable bastard and Bruce as a moody scumbag here we actually see Bruce Wayne smile yes which is quite cool isn't it do you remember when he did that I remember when he, he did that in this story <laughs> well yeah <laughs> I don't remember the last time I think he smiled a bit in Zero City or Whatever it's he called, started recently, it? but do you remember the time where DC wouldn't wouldn't, wouldn't let him? They had an uh, they had an editorial edit that must not smile. <laughs> Batman must never be Bruce Wayne for more than one page. <laughs> and he must Bruce never Wayne smile. must never smile. Yeah, it's 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 a thing. Tommy is still a plot device. Loeb makes no effort to flesh out his character or given us any reason to care about him. But you disagree with that, don't you? Yeah, you quite like Tommy Elliot. I mean. We have to like him or the story don't work, I suppose. I mean, he's, I don't dislike him, but he, he's not really... He's not around long enough to like him. No, there is that. He's dead at the end yeah. of this issue. So. Loeb does, however, an excellent job with Catwoman. There are interesting little character nuggets played out in the opening bits here. Where Selina doesn't know Bruce is Batman, but Bruce does know she's Catwoman. Leslie knows that Selina is Catwoman and it's implied that she knows Bruce is Batman. Mm. And for his part, Tommy clearly tells Bruce and Selina to hush. Did you notice yeah, that? Right, yeah. The opera they are attending is a Pagalashi. I'm probably butchering that pronunciation. <laughs> which is Italian for clowns. The song that Harley is singing when she makes her debut is Avesta Ligibia. Which translates as put on the costume. It's one of opera's most famous arias, and you know it if you'd heard it. I'm I know out of Rice Chris. That's the one, because that's what she sings. <laughs> I got that from The Simpsons, though. Right, okay. Uh, I know all this, obviously, because I'm a huge fan of the opera. Of course, yes. Yes, I didn't look this up at all. <laughs> Liar. <laughs> You decide which of those is true. A lovely listener. Bruce makes mention of his father, Thomas's love of the opera, and Alfred thinks that his relationship with Selina is the stuff of great opera. In Batman Begins, the Waynes are at an opera before the fatal shooting. Mm. You remember? So opera looms large in the Bat family. I wonder if uh, this was read by the people who made Batman Begins. And they thought, ooh, opera. That's better than Zorro. <laughs> it's not really, though, is it? 
not really. No, not if you're not going to do anything with it. This comic plays like an opera. Yeah. So it does something with that motif. Batman Begins, eh, not so much. Tommy Elliot is the only person in the audience with a mobile phone. Yeah. I presume they weren't quite as ubiquitous in 2003, but they were still quite popular, mm. weren't they? Could you take photos on them in 2003? I'm I really don't so. remember. Look at that bulky camera, though. Yeah, it is It is quite a bulky camera, so maybe you couldn't do photos at that point. We've seen True Detective. They have pictures on them. Yeah, that's true. Mm. All right, yeah, fair enough. Harley Quinn has springs in her boots. This was yes, funny. it was. This was exceptionally funny. They just do disappear when they need to as well. I mean, just appear, though. Yeah, they yeah. just appear and then disappear when, when she doesn't need to. go in and out of her boots. Do they really? Yeah. Okay, fair enough. You ever tried to put a spring back? She jumps on him and they go in and... Really? Yeah. Okay. So when she jumps on him, they don't enable her to bounce. They just go back in her boots. Kind of useless then, aren't they? I guess. <laughs> this was a very Bronze Age thing to have in a modern day comic, and it made me laugh. Yeah. Fair play to it. Daft as hell. Mm-hmm. What we read comics for, quite frankly. I thought it was, it was absolutely glorious. Suspension of disbelief is part of any superhero comic. But having Batman dominate the two-page spread between he and Harley... And her shoot at him and miss, but put four holes in his cape, seemed to be taking suspension of disbelief out the back and putting two in the head. Nice poster, though, although Harley is doing that funny turn that all ladies in comics can do where she's given us a, a nice look at both her ass and her boobs. Yeah. Try and get in that pose. It's not that Right now. Yeah, right. if you want to. Okay. If you want to try it. So she's... So, no, you'll have to turn around. Oh, you turn around so you. I can see your ass, yeah. So then turn around. I'm Batman. Right. So turn all the way around and shoot at me. Not really doable, is it? Because now you've turned around, I can't see your ass anymore. So, yeah. It, is it comfy? <laughs> is it comfortable? It's a good exercise. It's <laughs> stretching your limbs a little bit. Harley reveals that she's sticking with the script, tying in with Batman's belief that this is another case like Croc, where Harley is operating on a level far beyond what she's used to. Batman has also been using Kevlar reinforced cowls since his accident. Ah, uh, that page though. How strong is Kevlar? Just as a question. Anyway, this pair, Diego. It's Batman strong, apparently. Yes. That piece of that would be reused again in Harley Quinn issue zero. Would it? In which they say, wait a minute, I've seen this page before. Jim Lee's a cheat. He just digitally changed the costume. That's it. Right, okay, I did not notice that. Yeah. Probably. Did he get a page rate for that? Probably. <laughs> what a cheating scumbag. The, the dialogue does take the mick out of him. Alright, maybe it was deliberate then. It could it's be. It's entirely yeah. possible it's deliberate. In which case, he's not a cheating scumbag, he's just very lazy and always late with his work. <laughs> <laughs> ah, I'm only kidding. You pop out as many kids as you want, Jim. <laughs> just pop out some comics once in a while. Yeah, it would be nice. Another nice character moment where a car- woman gets bent out of shape being called Robin the Boy Hostages Understood It. Yeah. That was funny. I genuinely laughed at that. Jim Lee pulls off a number of homages in the action sequence and he does it very well he has Harley do that multiple appearances in one panel thing to imply fast movements a la Steve Ditko and Scott McDaniel and, and many other people who've, who've done that um, he has characters walk on the frame of the panel mm. like John Byrne used to do because it's the floor that they're actually walking on really good Yeah, artwork in this is actually really quite impressive the audience thinks this is part of the show <laughs> The audience think that urban legend Batman, that nobody can prove exists, is a part of the show. Yeah. Have they just thrown that urban legend thing out the window at this point? I think, yeah. Given that it was only less than a year ago, just over, that they did that story? Yeah. (laughs) Didn't we point out at the time that we read that that it didn't work? Yeah. Best issue of the run so far. Uh, Because he's he's back to being Batman again? Yeah, it's a balls-out action issue. 
and lovingly rise to the occasion. Thematically, it is an opera, obviously, complete with high drama and tragedy, and that this happens whilst at the opera is a little bit on the nose. But Loeb's ear for Harley's dialogue is exceptional, and she's funny, charming and deadly, as Harley should be. Clad in her animated series costume, her best look as far as I'm concerned, Harley is on top form, taking revenge for the incarceration of Ivy, with whom she has a special relationship. She's well characterised, and Catwoman and Leslie are equally well handled, showing Loeb can write really good women characters when the mood takes him. Lee, likewise, is at the top of his game here, setting this in a real-world environment like an opera house takes him out of his comfort zone of posed muscular men and women with large boobs and shapely bottoms, although he does get to draw both of those things. Catwoman and Harley both have figures to die for. He still manages to draw real people in a real setting, proving that Jim Lee can draw real stuff when he's required to. Tommy is still a cipher, but he's killed off, so good riddance. Or is he? Anyway, a late appearance by the Joker allowing Lee to tick another off his bucket list is not quite a surprise. Where Harley goes, surely the Joker isn't far behind. But it's becoming quite clear that this is just the DC Comics equivalent of a summer blockbuster where the central mystery isn't all that important. But ooh, look at the pretty. On that level, this one's a great issue. Yeah. I thought. Really good fun. In many ways. It was, what it was, do you think? It was great that it went back to being a Batman story again. Yeah. It's a good, it's a good fun Dunning one Harley Quinn mystery that ends on a cliffhanger, isn't it? It's, it's more of a two-part story. Yeah, yeah. It, it ends in the next. All right, fair enough. I'll give you that. I thought it was fun that one. I enjoyed that one. Anyway, six issues. We're going to call it a day, though. Knock it on the head, whatever you want to call it, because it's longer than usual. I'll have to edit at some point. <laughs> we'll be back next week with the last six parts of Hush. Well, we'll find out who done it. Yes, and I'm pretty sure. It won't be the Riddler. <laughs> it won't be definitely not the Riddler. It's Raz Al Ghul, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. It's totally Raz. It's my thinking. Anyway, we'll see you next week. Thank you for joining us. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Hey Kids Comics is a The Devil Will Find Work for Idle Hands to Do production. The music and sound clips used in the show are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only. And no infringement is intended, so don't send your phalanx of highly paid lawyers after us as we have no money. Certainly this show was not turned into a lucrative revenue stream as no money is made from this either, which vexes us. The opinions of Michael and Andrew expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and no one else. They own them, cherish them and look after them, but are probably not to be taken too seriously. New episodes drop every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com and Hey Kids Comics is a part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network and we can be emailed directly at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We can also be friended on Facebook by using Hey Kids, all one word as the first name, and Comics as the surname. We do hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics. In Manuel Camp was a real piss and it was very rarely stable. I digger, I digger was a boozy beggar who think you under the table. David Hume can have consumed with Elm Friedrich Hegel. And Wickenstein was a beery swine who was just a slosh to Schlegel. There's nothing Nietzsche couldn't teach about the raising of the wrist. Socrates himself was permanently pissed. 
She owns a spirit pill of his own free will On hot box shiny was particularly ill Later they say he could stick it away Half a grain of whiskey every day Aristotle, Aristotle was a bugger for the bottle Hobbs was fond of his dram And Rennie Descartes was a drunken fart I drink therefore I am Yes, Socrates himself is particularly missed A lovely little thinker but a bugger when he's pissed